Book Four, Chapter Five of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Four, Chapter Five More About Claude Frollo. In fourteen eighty two, Quasimodo was about twenty years of age, Claude Frollo about thirty six. One had grown up, the other had grown old. Claude Frollo was no longer the simple scholar of the College of Torch, the tender protector of a little child, the young and dreamy philosopher who knew many things and was ignorant of many. He was a priest, austere, grave, morose, one charged with souls. Monsieur the Archdeacon of José, the bishop's second acolyte, having charge of the two deaneries of Monterey and Chateau Fort, and one hundred and seventy-four country curacies. He was an imposing and sombre personage, before whom the choir-boys in alb and in jacket trembled, as well as the Machicot and the brothers of St. Augustine, and the matutinal clerks of Notre-Dame, when he passed slowly beneath the lofty arches of the choir, majestic, thoughtful, with arms folded and his head so bent upon his breast that all one saw of his face was his large, bald brow. Dom Claude Frollo had, however, abandoned neither science nor the education of his young brother, those two occupations of his life. But as time went on, some bitterness had been mingled with these things which were so sweet. In the long run, says Paul Diacre, the best lard turns rancid. Little Jehan Frollo, surnamed Dumoulin of the Mill, because of the place where he had been reared, had not grown up in the direction which Claude would have liked to impose upon him. The big brother counted upon a pious, docile, learned, and honorable pupil. But the little brother, like those young trees which deceive the gardener's hopes, and turn obstinately to the quarter whence they receive sun and air, the little brother did not grow and did not multiply, but only put forth fine, bushy, and luxuriant branches on the side of laziness, ignorance, and debauchery. He was a regular devil, and a very disorderly one, who made Dom Claude scowl, but very droll and very subtle, which made the big brother smile. Claude had confided him to that same college of Torchy where he had passed his early years in study and meditation, and it was a grief to him that this sanctuary, formerly edified by the name of Frollo, should today be scandalized by it. He sometimes preached Jehan very long and severe sermons, which the latter intrepidly endured. After all, the young scapegrace had a good heart as can be seen in all comedies. But the sermon over, he none the less tranquilly resumed the course of seditions and enormities. Now it was a bejon, or yellow-beak, as they called the new arrivals at the university, whom he had been mauling by way of welcome, a precious tradition which has been carefully preserved to our own day. Again he had set in movement a band of scholars, who had flung themselves upon a wine-shop in classic fashion, quasi-classico excitati, 
had then beaten the tavern-keeper with offensive cudgels, and joyously pillaged the tavern, even to smashing in the hogsheads of wine in the cellar. And then it was a fine report in Latin, which the sub-monitor of Torchy carried piteously to Dom Claude with his dolorous marginal comment, Rixa, prima causa vinum, optimum potatum. Finally it was said, a thing quite horrible in a boy of sixteen, that his debauchery often extended as far as the Rue de Glatigny. Claude, saddened and discouraged in his human affections, by all this, had flung himself eagerly into the arms of learning, that sister which at least does not laugh in your face, and which always pays you, though in money that is sometimes a little hollow, for the attention which you have paid to her. Hence he became more and more learned, and at the same time, as a natural consequence, more and more rigid as a priest, more and more sad as a man. There are for each of us several parallelisms between our intelligence, our habits, and our character, which develop without a break, and break only in the great disturbances of life. As Claude Frollo had passed through nearly the entire circle of human learning, positive, exterior, and permissible, since his youth he was obliged, unless he came to a halt, ubi defuit orbis, to proceed further and seek other elements for the insatiable activity of his intelligence. The antique symbol of the serpent biting its tail is, above all, applicable to science. It would appear that Claude Frollo had experienced this. Many grave persons affirm that, after having exhausted the phos of human learning, he had dared to penetrate into the nephos. He had, they said, tasted in succession all the apples of the tree of knowledge, and whether from hunger or disgust, had ended by tasting the forbidden fruit. He had taken his place by turns, as the reader has seen, in the conferences of the theologians in Sorbonne, in the assemblies of the doctors of art, after the manner of Saint Hilaire, in the disputes of the decretalists, after the manner of Saint Martin, in the congregations of physicians at the holy water font of Notre Dame, at Cupum Nostro Domino. All the dishes permitted and approved, which those four great kitchens called the four faculties could elaborate and serve to the understanding he had devoured, and had been satiated with them before his hunger was appeased. Then he had penetrated further, lower, beneath all that finished, material, limited knowledge. He had perhaps risked his soul, and had seated himself in the cavern at that mysterious table of the alchemists, of the astrologers, of the hermetics, of which Averroet, Guillaume de Paris, and Nicolas Flamel hold the end of the Middle Ages, and which extends in the east, by the light of the seven-branched candlestick, to Solomon, Pythagoras, and Zoroaster. That is, at least, what was supposed, whether rightly or not. It is certain that the archdeacon often visited the cemetery of the Saint Innocents, where, it is true, his father and mother had been buried, with other victims of the plague of 1466. But that he appeared far less devout before the cross of their grave, 
than before the strange figures with which the tomb of Nicolas Flamel and Claude Pernell erected just beside it was loaded. It is certain that he had frequently been seen to pass along the Rue des Lombards, and furtively enter a little house which formed the corner of the Rue des Ecrivains and the Rue Marivaux. It was the house which Nicolas Flamel had built, where he had died about 1417, and which, constantly deserted since that time, had already begun to fall in ruins. So greatly had the hermetics and the alchemists of all countries wasted away the walls merely by carving their names upon them. Some neighbors even affirm that they had once seen, through an air-hole, Archdeacon Claude excavating, turning over, digging up the earth in the two cellars, whose supports had been daubed with numberless couplets and hieroglyphics by Nicolas Flamel himself. It was supposed that Flamel had buried the philosopher's stone in the cellar, and the alchemists, for the space of two centuries, from Magistri to Father Pacifique, never ceased to worry the soil until the house, so cruelly ransacked and turned over, ended by falling into dust beneath their feet. Again, it is certain that the archdeacon had been seized with a singular passion for the symbolical door of Notre Dame, that page of a conjuring book written in stone, by Bishop Guillaume de Paris, who has, no doubt, been damned for having affixed so infernal a frontispiece to the sacred poem chanted by the rest of the edifice. Archdeacon Claude had the credit also of having fathomed the mystery of the Colossus of St. Christopher, and of that lofty, enigmatical statue which then stood at the entrance of the vestibule, and which the people in derision called Monsieur Legris. But what every one might have noticed was the interminable hours which he often employed, seated upon the parapet of the area in front of the church, in contemplating the sculptures of the front, examining now the foolish virgins with their lamps reversed, now the wise virgins with their lamps upright, again calculating the angle of the vision of that raven which belongs to the left front and which is looking at a mysterious point inside the church, where is concealed the philosopher's stone, if it be not in the cellar of Nicolas Flamel. It was, let us remark in passing, a singular fate for the church of Notre Dame at that epoch to be so beloved, in two different degrees, and with so much devotion, by two beings so dissimilar as Claude and Quasimodo. Beloved by one, a sort of instinctive and savage half-man, for its beauty, for its stature, for the harmonies which emanated from its magnificent ensemble. Beloved by the other, a learned and passionate imagination, for its myth, for the sense which it contains, for the symbolism scattered beneath the sculptures of its front, like the first text underneath the second in a palimpsest, in a word, for the enigma which it is eternally propounding to the understanding. Furthermore, it is certain that the archdeacon had established himself in that one of the two towers which looks upon the grave, just beside the frame for the bells, a very secret little cell, into which no one, not even the bishop, entered without his leave, it was said. 
This tiny cell had formerly been made almost at the summit of the tower, among the raven's nests, by Bishop Hugo de Besançon, who had wrought sorcery there in his day. What that cell contained no one knew, but from the strand of the terrain at night there was often seen to appear, disappear, and reappear, at brief and regular intervals, at a little dormer window opening upon the back of the tower, a certain red, intermittent, singular light which seemed to follow the panting breaths of a bellows, and to proceed from a flame rather than from a light. In the darkness, at that height, it produced a singular effect, and the good wife said, "'There's the archdeacon blowing! Hell is sparkling up yonder!' There were no great proofs of sorcery in that, after all but there was still enough smoke to warrant a surmise of fire, and the archdeacon bore a tolerably formidable reputation. We ought to mention, however, that the sciences of Egypt, that necromancy and magic, even the whitest, even the most innocent, had no more envenomed enemy, no more pitiless denunciator before the gentlemen of the officialty of Notre Dame. Whether this was sincere horror, or the game played by the thief who shouts stop thief at all events, it did not prevent the archdeacon from being considered by the learned heads of the chapter as a soul who had ventured into the vestibule of hell, who was lost in the caves of the cabal, groping amid the shadows of the occult sciences. Neither were the people deceived thereby. With any one who possessed any sagacity, Quasimodo passed for the demon. Claude Frollo, for the sorcerer. It was evident that the bell-ringer was to serve the archdeacon for a given time, at the end of which he would carry away the latter's soul by way of payment. Thus the archdeacon, in spite of the excessive austerity of his life, was in bad odour among all pious souls, and there was no devout no so inexperienced that it could not smell him out to be a magician. And if, as he grew older, abysses had formed in his science, they had also formed in his heart. That, at least, is what one had grounds for believing, on scrutinizing that face upon which the soul was only seen to shine through a sombre cloud. Whence that large, bald brow, that head forever bent, that breast always heaving with sighs? What secret thought caused his mouth to smile with so much bitterness, at the same moment that his scowling brows approached each other like two bulls on the point of fighting. Why was what hair he had left already grey? What was that internal fire which sometimes broke forth in his glance, to such a degree that his eye resembled a hole pierced in the wall of a furnace? These symptoms of a violent moral preoccupation had acquired an especially high degree of intensity at the epoch when this story takes place. More than once a choir-boy had fled in terror at finding him alone in the church, so strange and dazzling was his look. More than once in the choir, at the hour of the offices, his neighbour in the stalls had heard him mingle with the plain song, ad omnem tonum, unintelligible parentheses. More than once the laundress of the terrain charged with washing the chapter had observed, not without affright, the marks of nails and clenched fingers on the surplice of Monsieur the Archdeacon of José. 
However, he redoubled his severity, and had never been more exemplary. By profession, as well as by character, he had always held himself aloof from women. He seemed to hate them more than ever. The mere rustling of a silken petticoat caused his hood to fall over his eyes. Upon this score he was so jealous of austerity and reserve that when the Dame de Beaujol, the king's daughter, came to visit the cloister of Notre-Dame in the month of December, 1481, he gravely opposed her entrance, reminding the bishop of the statute of the Black Book, dating from the vigil of St. Bartholomew, 1334, which interdicts access to the cloister to any woman whatever, old or young, mistress or maid upon which the bishop had been constrained to recite to him the ordinance of Legate Odo, which accepts certain great dames, alicoe magnates mulieres, coesine scandalo vitari non pusant. And again the archdeacon had protested, objecting that the ordinance of the legate, which dated back to 1207, was anterior by a hundred and twenty-seven years to the black book, and consequently was abrogated in fact by it. And he had refused to appear before the princess. It was also noticed that his horror for bohemian women and gypsies had seemed to redouble for some time past. He had petitioned the bishop for an edict which expressly forbade the bohemian women to come and dance and beat their tambourines on the place of the Parvis, and for about the same length of time he had been ransacking the mouldy placards of the officialty, in order to collect the cases of sorcerers and witches condemned to fire or the rope, for complicity in crimes with rams, sows, or goats. End of Book Four, Chapter Five